My name is Elise Neville, and this is Wrestling Before God, episode number seven, The Prophet. This is Wrestling Before God. It's the podcast where I, Elise Neville, an average member of the church, research some of the big questions that come up for me during this week's Come Follow Me lesson. Thanks for being here. Okay, so this week is going to be a little different. So a little background. Before I started this podcast, I had planned to do the podcast as a discussion between me and my wonderful sister-in-law, Lillian Winters. She is my scripture study buddy. (laughs) She has so many wonderful insights, and we thought it would be fun to share our discussions with everyone. But it actually turns out to be kind of hard to podcast with two people across the country. We had technical difficulties, scheduling conflicts, and all sorts of other challenges. And so the format of the podcast changed into what you've been hearing in the episodes so far. But before it changed, we did manage to record one full episode, and I'm republishing that this week. So in this episode, Lillian and I are discussing section one of the Doctrine and Covenants. But I chose to republish it now because section one and section 60 really cover the same span of time. Section one was revealed after the elders went on their excursion to Missouri that's discussed in section 60 and 61. And this podcast that you're about to hear discusses some of the fallout that occurred during that trip. The recording isn't perfect and you'll hear some children's voices in the background because priorities, but I think you'll find the content really interesting. So here we go. Today's discussion is on section one, and this was not the first revelation received chronologically speaking, as you know, Lillian. This was given actually at the beginning of November, 1831, and at that point, about 67 revelations that are currently in our Doctrine and Covenants had been received, but none of them had been published. And... The lack of publication was the source of a little controversy that began with a man named Ezra Booth. Now, Ezra Booth had been a Methodist minister, and he had joined the church when he saw the healing of a woman's paralytic arm. But he was pretty quickly disenchanted with the church, and so just five months after joining the church, he left. He wrote several letters about his experiences to close acquaintances, and those letters were quickly picked up by the Ohio Star, which was the local newspaper. And you can actually see facsimiles of the letters as they were published in the newspaper, and I'll link to those in the show notes. But, you know, as I read these letters, I sympathized with Ezra Booth. He experienced some really difficult things, and I can see how he arrived at the conclusions he arrived at. In fact, I think his observations are really relevant today to some of the concerns members have about following the prophet. And we'll get to those in just a minute. But one of the claims Ezra Booth made in these letters was that the prophet's revelations were secret and that they were constantly changing according to his whims. And Joseph Smith really wants to combat this. So in November 1831, after just three of Ezra's letters had been published in the paper, three out of nine total, Joseph Smith calls a council together. And the issue at that council is whether Joseph Smith's revelations should be published. Ultimately, the council does agree that the revelations should be published. And they asked Joseph to ask the Lord for a preface after some time. And the Lord's preface is what we now call section one of the Doctrine and Covenants. So essentially, the Book of Commandments is being published because Ezra Booth wrote a series of these letters that were published in the Ohio Star, and they were creating this stir, this big problem. 
And his letters make a variety of points, but I kind of boiled them down to three. And the three points that I see are, number one, Joseph Smith is weak. He's imperfect. He's not a model, godly citizen. The second point I think he makes is Joseph's prophecies are false. And the third point he makes is that Joseph Smith is a tyrant. So I'm going to read a couple of excerpts. And these actually come from his eighth letter. This letter he sent to Edward Partridge, who is the bishop of the church at the time. Okay, so this is what he says to Edward Partridge. Now permit me to inquire, have you not frequently observed in Joseph a want of that sobriety, prudence, and stability, which are some of the most prominent traits in Christian character? Have you not often observed in him a spirit of lightness and levity, a temper of mind easily irritated, and an habitual proneness to jesting and joking? Have you not repeatedly proved to your own satisfaction that he says he knows things to be so by the Spirit when they are not so? You most certainly have. I love this letter because I think it has the tendency to be a little more truthful because he's talking directly to Edward Partridge, who's experienced some of the same things. And I think that this is, from what I've read, this is a pretty accurate account of Joseph Smith. So I think this is really interesting. I don't know, Lillian, what's your impression of that statement of the prophet? No, that is interesting. And I guess I've heard of him being uh, lighthearted and, you know, teasing and fun. But the other stuff I actually haven't heard before about him. But um, it definitely makes him sound like not somebody that you would picture a prophet would be. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like all the opposite traits. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I can see where the elders of the church are um, very concerned about, you know, what how people view Joseph, especially with these letters coming out with from Ezra Booth and him not seeming, you know, like a prophet that people would expect him to be. (laughs) I totally agree with you. I totally agree. And Ezra Booth continues to make more statements about Joseph Smith. The second point is that on top of being imperfect, Joseph's prophecies aren't even true. So Ezra was part of a contingent of elders who went from Kirtland to Independence, Missouri, to make sure that there was land for the saints there. And before they left, Joseph said to them, I'm sure that Oliver Cowdery, who had gone before them, has set up a church that is going to be full of people. We're going to have lots of saints there. And it turned out that there weren't lots of saints there. And so Ezra Booth writes in this letter to Edward Partridge, he says, quote, the first thing that materially affected my mind so as to weaken my confidence was the falsehood of Joseph's vision. You know perfectly well that Joseph had or said he had a vision or revelation in which, in which it was made known to him by the spirit that Oliver had raised up a great church in Missouri. This was so confidently believed previous to our leaving Ohio that while calculating the number in the church, several hundred were added, supposed to be in Missouri. The great church was found to consist of three or four females. And the third point that he makes about Joseph Smith is that he's a bit of a tyrant. 
that when the prophet speaks, the people are expected to follow. In his first letter, and this would have been published before they had the meeting about the Book of Commandments being published, he says, quote, The Mormonites will tell you that business of this nature is done by the voice of the church. It's like this. A sovereign issues his decrees and then says to his subjects, hold up your right hands in favor of my decrees being carried into effect, unquote. And so we have these three big problems that Joseph's weak. He's a bad example of being a member of the church. Number two, that Joseph's prophecies, in addition, are false. And number three, that Joseph is talked about as this tyrant. And yet the people have to follow him anyway even when he's wrong. And I think that Doctrine and Covenants section one, as the preface to the Doctrine and Covenants, does a really good job of answering these three points. To the first point that Joseph is weak and not a model of perfection, I feel like Doctrine and Covenants section one is saying, yeah, Joseph Smith is weak. That's the way I planned it. Do you see it that way, Lillian, too? Yeah, I actually feel like the majority of section one kind of covers that, or if I'm remembering it correctly, um, because he talks about, or the Lord, he knows Joseph Smith isn't as educated as a lot of those other men, but he's the one receiving revelation for the church. So he's going to give it the revelation to Joseph so that Joseph understands it the best way he knows how, because he has to relate it to everybody, right? Yeah. So I like how he says, I don't care how educated someone is um, or about their weaknesses, you know? And I think the Lord purposely chooses people who maybe have a lot of weaknesses so that you can see the miracles of God more clearly. I I love that you said that. I totally see it that way. I agree. He talks about the weak things of the world, that they'll come forth and break down the mighty and strong ones, right? And he says he does that, that they won't trust in the arm of flesh, but that they'll lean on God and believe in him. And so I think you're totally right. In fact, it makes me think of in the New Testament of the boy with the loaves and the fishes, how he offers all that he has. He's just this little boy. And Jesus is able to stretch that out and feed thousands and be left with some to spare. So I love your point that you say, that he uses the weak things of the world so that when miracles are done, there's no doubt about who did it. It's definitely not Joseph who right. built the church, right? <laughs> right? Um, the Book of Mormon, like he no way could have done that. So um, that's how I always see um, when people claim all those things about the Book of Mormon. Um, there was no possible way that he could have written any of the Book of Mormon, and it was definitely translated through the power of God. I'm totally with you. Exactly. I also think he makes, Joseph makes some really interesting comments about his own character. He says, uh, and this is recorded in the history of the church, he says, quote, I do not think there have been many good men on the earth since the days of Adam, but there was one good man. And his name was Jesus. Many persons think a prophet must be a great deal better than anybody else. I do not want you to think that I am righteous, for I am not. I really like that about that Joseph was pretty upfront. Like, I'm, I'm not a great man, but I'm, I'm giving you the knowledge that I have been given. I think there are so many really good examples of this in the Old Testament of prophets being weak. But my very favorite example is in the book of Jonah. And 
let me just say that Jonah is one of my very favorite Old Testament books. I find it so redemptive. I don't know if you've read The Peacegiver by James Farrell. Have you read that, Lillian? No. It helped me see the story of Jonah in a new light, so I highly recommend it to anybody wanting to read it. But in essence, we know the story. God commands Jonah to go to Nineveh, and Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He hates Nineveh. Nineveh is guilty of terrible things, and so he runs away. And we know that as he runs away, his ship gets caught in a storm. He's tossed overboard. He's swallowed by a fish. But Jonah repents, and God has mercy on Jonah, and he saves him. So Jonah does what God wants him to do. He goes to Nineveh. And this is the part I think that we don't spend as much time on as members of the church, but this is my favorite part. When he goes to Nineveh, he gives the shortest and least heartfelt sermon ever. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And that's it. Like that's his whole sermon. (laughs) But the people feel mad that he has to go there. I know, exactly. But the people believe him and they repent. And Jonah is so mad and he prays to God and he says, essentially, I knew this would happen. That is why I left. He repeats what he knows about God's character, which incidentally, Lillian, I know you listen to the Bible Project. We both really love the Bible Project podcast. And um, they've recently done a study on God's character and they bring up the fact that Exodus 34, six through seven is the most quoted scripture about God's character. And this is one of those times Jonah's quoting uh, Exodus 34, six through seven, where he says, so Jonah says back to God, I knew that thou art a gracious God. I can just picture Jonah saying this with so much anger. I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. (laughs) He's like, I didn't want to go because I knew you would forgive them. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Because I think, you know, I, I, when we studied, when I studied Jonah last, I did realize that for the first time that he was angry that they repented and turned to God because and which makes sense because they were killing his people and doing really terrible things so he probably didn't want them to um you know have the blessing yeah exactly (laughs) having the blessings of the you know the atonement and what happens when you repent I think he wanted them to um essentially not gain salvation. I think, I don't know. I know. I, I think you're right. But what I love about this story is that for me, it is dripping with Jonah's hypocrisy. It's like, God's like, look, do you remember what I did for you? You abandoned me and I rescued you and I saved you. And so the whole book of Jonah ends with God asking this question, to him, Jonah, doest thou well to be angry? And to me, that is the most gentle thing that God could say in this situation. He's not saying you are being really hypocritical here. I just saved you. And I want to, like, I want to save all my people. And he really just asks Jonah, look at the situation are you doing the right thing by being angry? And so I feel like this is a really great example of how our prophets are weak. And I think uh, these stories 
give me some evidence that maybe God chooses weak things on purpose. Like he's showing us, like you mentioned, that he can do great things with this little that is offered to him by very imperfect people. Like that sermon by Jonah is ridiculous. No one is going to pin Nineveh's repentance on Jonah. Look at what his great words made them do, right? Like it's the work of God. And I think the same can be said of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He chose Joseph because that work couldn't be attributed to him. And I also think that the story of Jonah shows that when he chooses the weak, his mercy is extended to all people. You know, like Moroni said um, in Ether, he says, condemn me not because of mine imperfection, but give thanks unto God that he hath made manifest unto you our imperfections that you may learn to be more wise than we have been. And I just see so much evidence of that um, among the prophets in the church. They are just further evidence that that we can repent and that God can have mercy on us. What do you think about that? To me, it really just helps me see, yeah, there is no way that Joseph Smith could have done any of these things, you know, um, translate the book of Mormon or just even organize a church and a people and get them to, um, you know, leave so many times. And even like through all that persecution, like there's no way that, it would just be because of him that all those saints would do all those things that they did. Um, cause it was not easy at all. Um, and so many times they had to abandon, you know, the temple that they were building and their livelihoods and just flee. Um, and a lot of things went wrong and, you know, a lot of people did leave the miracles that did happen and the blessings that did happen. I think the people that stayed knew without a doubt that it was God that was leading them. Because I think the Smith was imperfect. Yeah. I think you're totally right. That's how I see it too. In fact, Lorenzo Snow said, I saw Joseph Smith, the prophet, do things which I did not approve of. And yet I thanked God that he would put upon a man who had these imperfections, the power and authority which he placed upon him. For I knew I myself had weaknesses and I thought there was a chance for me. Unquote. And I think that if I look at the prophet in that light, I have a much better understanding for the shortcomings that I read and some of the encounters people have with him. Yeah, I agree. The second point Ezra Booth makes is that the prophet's prophecies are false. And Doctrine and Covenants 1 speaks directly to this. The Lord says, search these commandments for they are true and faithful and the prophecies and promises which are in them shall all be fulfilled. What I, the Lord, have spoken, I have spoken, and I excuse not myself. And though the heavens and the earth pass away, my word shall not pass away, but shall all be fulfilled. Whether by mine own voice or by the voice of my servants, it is the same. However, (laughs) earlier in the same section, in verses 24 through 27, God says, Behold, I am God and have spoken it. These commandments are of me. And verse 25, And inasmuch as they erred, it might be known. And verse 27, and inasmuch as they sinned, they might be chastened, that they might repent. So we have this weird dichotomy for me in the chapter where I feel like God's saying, my commandments are true and faithful and they'll be fulfilled, but also sometimes there are errors and they'll be made known and the prophets will repent. Do you see that, that contradiction? 
Yeah, I actually hadn't really thought about it that way until you pointed it out. But that makes sense to me because I feel like God does allow us to make mistakes. But, um, you know, with leaders of our church, I think he does allow them to make mistakes, but he's not going to lead us astray. So, yeah. But I think that maybe the, I don't know, maybe the leaders need to learn these lessons. And so he has to allow them to make the mistakes and, or maybe even the members of the church have to learn the lessons, like through the prophets making the mistakes. Um, I love that you said that. I totally agree with that. I feel like God kind of teaches us line upon line also. I love President Nelson's talk just in the last conference about being myopic and not having that big vision, right? Sometimes we're just too focused on the here and now and we see what's happening right now and we want it to be fixed and changed. I love that you said that. Joseph Smith himself said that a prophet is only a prophet when he's acting as such. And Harold B. Lee told a story, I don't know if you remember this, about Brigham Young getting up and standing in front of the congregation. And he said, Brigham Young gave a really impassioned speech about these troops that were coming toward them. And Brigham Young said, we're going to fight them. (laughs) And then he got up after like the session after that morning session. He said, in the afternoon, Brigham Young rose and said that Brigham Young had been talking in the morning, but the Lord was going to talk now. He then delivered an address, the tempo of which was the exact opposite of the morning sermon. (laughs) That's hilarious. It's really funny. And so sometimes our prophets say things that turn out not to be true, but inevitably you're right. I feel like that leads us to a really important question which is what responsibility do we have to follow the prophet when we suspect he might be wrong? And I think that might be one of the most important questions of our time. And this also gets to Booth's final point, which is that he sees the prophet is acting as a sovereign and the members of the church are expected to follow him. And it does seem in this section that the Lord does require that his people follow the prophet. He wants them to, you know, when they don't follow the prophet, he says that they're guilty of sin. And so what do we do when we disagree with the prophet or we don't have a testimony of the things that he says we should do? Um, The New Era in September 2016 commented on this. They said that it's our privilege to ask the Lord for our own witness about whatever his prophet has proclaimed. If we don't receive a witness, then we should study what other prophets have said about the manner and choose a course of action. The best course of action is to follow the combined consistent counsel of the prophets in all patience and faith. And to me, I see that this is a really hard pill to swallow, maybe for a lot of members of the church. Like if you disagree with the prophet, why should I have to sit and follow him anyway? But a really good example of people maybe wanting to deviate from the prophet in recent recent church history is the issue of the blacks and the priesthood. And I'm really excited to talk about this at the end of the year when we discuss official declaration number two, but let's just give a really brief historical overview. So in Joseph Smith's lifetime, he ordained a few black men to the priesthood. But then in 1852, during Brigham Young's tenure as prophet, the privilege of the priesthood was taken away. And there's no known recorded revelation on this. There wasn't any canonized explanation given. And eventually this policy or 
whatever you want to call it, was super problematic when Black members started to want to join the church. And then it was even more problematic when they began the civil rights movement. And I I don't know, Lillian, I know your family's from Brazil. And I know it was a huge problem in Brazil, right? Like members yep. of the church. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Um, so just from what I, my mom has told me, cause she joined the church during that time as a youth. Um, and she said it was really hard because they would ask the members, um, to prove through their genealogy that they didn't have any, um, black ancestors. And so you could look, you know, white and, but if you had one black ancestor, they just wouldn't even teach you or baptize you because you couldn't, I guess, because I know you could technically get baptized, but I guess just since you couldn't receive the priesthood, I don't know, but the missionaries just wouldn't teach them if they did and they just wouldn't get baptized. And so it was really sad because Brazil has the history of slavery like the United States, um, but I'm pretty sure it lasted longer than the United States. Um, and well, so they also had of, like a stronger history of intermarriage too, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so that there was a ton of intermarrying. And um, so I think a lot of people had ancestors that they maybe didn't even know about, you know, that were um, black. And so it was a huge deal. And, um, and I think actually that problem in Brazil was one of the reasons that um, it, or it helped push the revelation, right, to come about. Like, <laughs> there was a lot of pressure to maybe have that, you know, be changed because a lot of people were wanting to get baptized that just couldn't, and it was really hard. And, it, and I think my mom even remembered it being hard um, for her, and she didn't quite understand, you know, why that was a thing if this was like, the church of God. I think you've made some really interesting points. I was reading, I'm, I'm just so excited to talk about this at the end of the year um, because it's so interesting to me, but I was reading, I was reading a couple of accounts of members of the church in Brazil and also in Africa where when they were given patriarchal blessings, patriarchs were starting to say things like, if you are faithful, you will receive the blessing of the priesthood while here on earth. You will have the privilege of going on a mission. And they and these patriarchs would end the blessings and panic. <laughs> and they would call their stake presidents and say, I just said this in a blessing. What do you want me to do about it? This is in the 60s. And the blessing would go then to the office of the first presidency. And the first presidency would say things like, lovely blessing and not anything else, or I don't see anything wrong with this blessing, or, you know, thank you for being open to the spirit or things like that. So I think you're right that those, that those little pieces of revelation started to trickle into the office of the first presidency too. And I think it's really interesting you say that because um, I think there were members of the church who disagreed with the priesthood ban and who felt like it was past the time for it to be restored to those members, whether, you know, if it even shouldn't have been taken at all. And some people spoke out openly against that. And Brigham Young actually says something really interesting that I think is another hard pill to swallow, but I do think it's interesting. He said, quote, it's not the place for any person to correct any person who is superior to them. 
but ask the Father in the name of Jesus to bind him up from speaking false principles. I have known many times I've preached wrong, unquote. So, so Brigham Young is essentially saying you, you really can't come out and publicly correct your leaders, but you can appeal directly to God. And at the time of the civil rights movement, Lowell Bennion said something similar. So I'm going to quote a a really fascinating article uh, about the revelation on the priesthood here. Quote, Lowell Bennion, charismatic Institute of Religion teacher at the University of Utah, felt that members could properly pray for change. In 1963, he pointed out, quote, God's revelations depend upon our minds, our eagerness upon our search, upon our questions, upon our moral disturbances, if you will, upon our needs. It may be that the Lord can't get through to us sometimes on things. Therefore, we ought to be thinking and searching and praying even over this Negro problem, unquote. Which to me maybe sounds like a cop-out, like, okay, so I can't publicly speak out, but I can pray for things and and they'll work out. I mean, that may sound like a little bit of a cop-out, but I actually feel like this is really beautifully demonstrated by the members of the Genesis group. Are you familiar with the Genesis group, Lillian? I'm not. Okay, so the Genesis group is started out before it was the Genesis group as three black men, Darius Gray, Gene Orr, and Ruffin Bridgeforth. And they were some of the first black members of the church living in Utah. And as you can imagine, being a member of the church at the time was really hard um, because you couldn't hold the priesthood. And there was still a lot of prejudice at that time. There still is, let's be honest. (laughs) But I think it was really difficult for them. And so what they did is they actually followed this counsel. He's uh, Darius Gray says, we went into a little classroom and I remember there were those orange plastic chairs that you find in every lunchroom or classroom. And we knelt beside a chair and we asked God to guide us in what we ought to do to address these issues of the missing black Latter-day Saints. Okay, I'll just interject here that... They were concerned about the members of their family who were members of the church that were leaving or becoming less active. They were concerned about the uh, descendants of the early Black Mormon pioneers. And so they were praying to figure that out. All right, I'll continue on. He says, after that, we felt led to approach the senior brethren of the church. And they received a response. He goes on to continue that President Smith, this is Joseph Fielding Smith, assigned three junior apostles to meet with us, not a member of the 70, not a member of the 12, but three members of the 12. We had a series of meetings talking about the issues. Who could have thought that three apostles would really be willing to sit down and talk with three black guys? The tone at the time was such. The meetings went well. Some of them were a little bit uncomfortable. Ruffin was the stage man. He'd been around and he had a calming way about him. Gene was the fiery young man who was pushing. I see myself as the guy who was watching. I remember one of the meetings did not end in prayer where the others did, but it had been heated enough. (laughs) Gene continued to push. Why do blacks not have the priesthood? Why can't blacks have the priesthood? So that's so interesting to me. And, And after this meeting, these men, these three men were 
set apart without the priesthood, but they were set apart as leaders of a group for black members of the church. And this group still exists today. They named it the Genesis group. And it's just a unique group in the church that consists of black members and they do their own kind of fellowshipping. They go to their own wards too, but they're also part of this group and they, um, Go have devotionals and those kinds of things. Then eventually, of course, the policy of the church did change to allowing black members of the church to have the priesthood, but their patience, the patience of these men and all the black members of the church just astounds me. What made them stay in the church uh, was my question. And, and I love Darius Gray's response to, to this. What made him stay? He says, quote, the truth is I received personal revelation. I did not see angelic beings. I did not see God, the father or the savior, but I heard, I heard this is the restored gospel and you are to join. There was no mention of the priesthood restriction, whether it was of God or of man or whatever, just this is the restored gospel, unquote. And so I guess I don't know why it's this way. I don't know why we can't publicly, you know, protest, I guess, and why we just need to pray and be patient, but if Darius Gray and these yeah. other men can be patient in this difficult situation, surely I can. And the other thing I was thinking is maybe the other reason we're not, we, we are asked not to criticize leadership of the church is not because it harms them, but because it harms us. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've personally felt the poison in my heart when I'm constantly judging someone, right? Yes. <laughs> So I just found this so interesting. And I wanted to end with one other story from the Old Testament that I find fascinating about God upholding his prophets when maybe they're wrong. You know, there's there's the story of Abraham who's being promised the land of Canaan by God. It's this promised land. And so he goes to live in Canaan, but then there's a, a famine and instead of trusting God and staying there and waiting for God to deliver him, he just pieces out and heads to Egypt <laughs> and to see what he can get there from, you know, the Pharaoh. And when he goes, he tells his wife to tell them that she's his sister. So he deceives Pharaoh and Pharaoh thinks she's so beautiful that he takes Sarah to be part of his harem. And then God sends to Egypt, these calamities and pestilences. And Pharaoh's like, what is going on? And discovers that it's because he's taken this woman who's already Abraham's wife. And he goes to Abraham and says, why did you do this to me? <laughs> why? I, this is really not fair. And he sends Sarah and Abraham off. And I think that story is so interesting. Abraham is in the wrong. Like not only does he leave the promised land, but he deceives Pharaoh. And yet God to bring about his purposes continues to uphold Abraham because Abraham's chosen. And that doesn't mean that Abraham's better than anybody. It just means that Abraham has been chosen to do God's work. And so God has to support him. And I think that's kind of the design pattern that we see throughout the history of the church. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that, Lillian? Yeah, no, I, um, I agree. And I, I mean, just from studying the old Testament and I'm not saying that I know it very well at all, but, um, the times that I've studied it, 
I feel like one of the huge themes all over the Old Testament, like every story that I read in there, I feel like there's this theme of learning to trust God, like wholeheartedly, like give your whole heart to God and trust him. And over and over again, like it doesn't happen, you know, (laughs) um, the people fail. Yeah. Miserably. Exactly. (laughs) But he still comes back, you know, like he's still there. He doesn't leave. He still gives them like a million chances, right. To trust him. And so I just find it interesting. Um, like, you know, even starting with Abraham, well, even, you know, it's probably starting with Adam and Eve, but like Abraham, you know, the, the, where the Israelites look to, um, who the Israelites look to, uh, even him, like he is showing like his lessons of learning how to, um, wholeheartedly like put all his trust in the Lord. Um, because things are always going to seem like they're impossible. But I love that scripture in the new Testament, you know, when Mary is going to, well, it's probably said a couple of times, but the first time in the new Testament, like when Mary is going to conceive and, have a baby, um, as a virgin. And the angel says, you know, nothing is impossible with God on your side. And I feel like that's all over the scriptures because there's so many situations where some things are impossible and there's no possible way that it's going to happen, but then God makes it happen because he's on your side and he's going to do what he says he's going to do. And he's going to make it happen. Um, and so, I think just, but it's really hard to remember that and trust him in the thick of things, right? When everything, like you have no idea. Yeah. You have no idea how he's going to make it possible. But I always, you know, I always, that's when that scripture, you know, my ways are not your ways. And I think, you know, God is obviously way more creative than us and knows more than us and (laughs) can make things happen. Um, So I love that you know, even starting with Abraham, we see, um, that theme and that Abraham is teaching us, you know, we need to trust in God, but when you don't, he's still going to, you and you repent, he's still there. He's going to help you and everything will turn out. Okay. What I learned from this section is that when someone's chosen, They're chosen to bring about God's purposes, which he actually lays out pretty clearly in this section. It doesn't mean that those people are more qualified (laughs) in any way, (laughs) but it does mean that they're meant to do a work and they're weak usually because God wants to prove that the work is his and that they make mistakes. And in those mistakes, we all learn lessons that are crucial to our growth. Thanks for listening. As always, you can find a link to our research in the show notes. If you'd like to be part of a discussion on this topic or ask your own questions, please follow Wrestling Before God on Instagram. I look forward to hearing from you. See you next time.